We had the privilege earlier this morning to witness the baptism of several of our young people. We welcome them into our membership. We're thankful for them. Following the biblical pattern and the meaning of the word baptize, we immersed them in water. In this literal sense, immersion means to submerge. Immersion can also be used figuratively, and we use it often in our culture. Friday night through Saturday morning, a number of people gathered here in this auditorium to pray through the night, something that we do once a year. It's a great opportunity. And we immersed ourselves in prayer that time. There are schools, you've maybe seen some of them advertised, that are called immersion schools. In these institutions, a foreign language is employed as the medium of instruction. English-speaking students are figuratively immersed all day in the foreign language of that school that's taught in that school. Often the word immersion is used in context where a person enters an unnatural environment for a period of time. Whether used figuratively or literally, this is the case. They go down in and they come up out. In baptism, we are briefly immersed in the environment of water, not our natural habitat, and we're brought back up out of the water. In an all-night prayer meeting, we immerse ourselves in an environment of sleeplessness. That's not natural to us, but then we are brought out of that environment and we get some rest. We must. A child in an immersion school is submerged into a linguistic environment during the day that is not the cultural environment, the norm. Then as the school bell rings, a child leaves and goes back into the world that surrounds them. Last year at this time, I remember uh, Brother Bazanson and myself, we were immersed in a foreign culture right at this time last year. We went to, to uh, India to minister there, and it was an immersion uh, to be in a place that wasn't natural to you culturally, that you went down in and you knew that you'd come back out in God's grace. As we come to Genesis chapter 29, I'd like you to think of this word, immersion. Think immersion here. The chapter starts an immersion experience for Jacob. Jacob is submerged into a culture and a world that is not his own and from which he will eventually be extracted. This idea is commended by the very structure of the Jacob account. Notice uh, again back in chapter 28, what did we see there? In chapter 28, as Jacob leaves the promised land, there is a vision of God. He has a dream. He sees the Lord. Now in chapters 29, 30, and 31, Jacob will be in Padanaram, in the, in the city of Haran, and there in that city he will be submerged in a different world. Where do we end? At chapter 32, there's another vision of God as he comes back to the land. So in chapters 29 through 31, we have this drop, this submersion into a different world, into a different culture. Now remember, as we think about this period of immersion in Jacob's life, the reason for Jacob's journey away from the promised land is that he has deceived his older brother, stealing his father's blessing away from the firstborn Esau, which was not custom in that time. Remember that thought. Esau plots to murder Jacob. On his mother's suggestion, Jacob flees to Haran. He hopes to escape from his brother, but he also hopes that this trip will provide a wife from among his mother's clan. On one level, then, Jacob leaves Canaan because of the sin of treachery in his life. He's running for his life. But on another level, we see in chapters 29 through 31 that God is uniquely working with Jacob to find a wife for him outside of Canaan so that the promised offspring will entirely bypass Canaanite blood. In one sense, then, Jacob flees the consequences of his sin. Please put these two thoughts together. He is fleeing the consequences of his sin. But in another sense, God is moving to fulfill his promise to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. Both ideals, ideas sail side by side through this period of Jacob's life. Now, last week we saw the defining event on Jacob's journey to Haran. That was the event which took place while Jacob was still in Canaan at Bethel. As he ran from Esau, Jacob ran into God. And here Jacob re or God removed from Jacob's mind all doubt that he was the chosen son of promise. Remember that revelatory dream. God confirms this promise to Jacob. Let's look at chapter 28 and remember verse 13. God's vision here and his promise to Jacob is what? Verse 13. 
They're above it, or it could be above Jacob, or it could be above at the top of the staircase going into heaven, stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you. And I will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. I will not leave you, Jacob. You're the son of promise and you'll come back here. I will be with you and I will protect you. It is Jacob who will inherit the land of promise. The land promised to Abraham and Isaac. It is Jacob through whom the promise of a great offspring for Abraham will be realized. It is Jacob through whom Messiah will someday be born and be a blessing to all nations. That means that Jacob is going to get a wife. And it means that Jacob will come back to the land of Canaan. That does not mean, as we will discover, that God removes the consequences of Jacob's treachery in stealing the blessing from Esau. This is a crucial element for us to understand in the way that God works with us. God does not take away the consequences of sin. There's the inner working of his overarching purposes as they work themselves out through our own failures and weaknesses. And we see that here in Jacob's life. Now as we look at that life, we do not know how long he will be submerged in this different land. The son of promise runs for his life. He leaves the land. His immersion journey has trans is transformed by the vision at Bethel. He's pointed east, but from this point on, his thoughts will always be westward. Will God bring him back to the land? Will God, in fact, bless him? But what will the journey hold? What will this immersion in Haran hold for him? How long will it last? What will God do to this blessed sinner? Let me say up front that we will get nothing out of this passage unless we're armed with two ideas. And I'd encourage our Sunday school teachers along these lines as we share these narrative accounts. There's times when God's name is not mentioned. It isn't because God had off that weekend. It, God is there. He's in it. We need to see, number one, the idea of divine providence. We must come to a text like this looking for God, searching for God. He told us he was going to take care of Jacob. God didn't go back up the ladder into heaven and forget about his son. He's taking care of Jacob. He's working in these circumstances. Moses does not see, see it necessary to tell us at every turn what God is doing. So we must come into the narrative with a sense of the providence of God. Otherwise, the passage will just read like a simple human interest story and won't mean a whole lot to us. God is never mentioned here. Moses assumes this. Number two, so we need to come in with divine providence in view. Secondly, we must come to this passage armed with an understanding of the similar journey Abraham's servant took to Haran to find a wife for Isaac. Do you remember that in chapter 24? There is going to be parallels all over the place. Now Moses can tell this story any way that he chooses. We realize he's under divine inspiration and so he's going to tell it this way. But looking at it from a human perspective, he can write it how he chooses. He chooses to make con consistent connections back to chapter 24. Where Abraham sends his servant and says, get me a wife for my son from Haran. Do not find a wife here. Go there. And you remember the servant and all that he goes through to discern the will of God. That is clearly being connected. That scene is being clearly connected here to the scene with Jacob. So we need to make those connections, or again, it will just come across as a human interest story and will mean very little to us. So with these thoughts in mind, let's walk now with Jacob as the circumstances of his life immerse him in a different world. As we watch him in this immersion experience, we will take a few moments at the end to consider what we learn about the way God works with his people in the nurture of their faith. Notice first, though, what he does with Jacob. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. Now as far as I know, every English version gives a sense translation here. The Hebrew text reads literally, Then Jacob lifted up his feet 
And indeed he did, a few billion times. It's a long journey from Canaan to Haran. Even if he rode a camel or a donkey, there's no indication, however, that in the text that he did. He seems to be on foot. The point is, this long journey goes without comment. He lifted up his feet and he went to Haran. The important experience en route is Bethel, where he meets God in chapter 28. Where is Jacob headed? He's headed, you notice there in verse 1, to the eastern peoples. That is a very important phrase. The eastern peoples does not refer to any one group of people. It just refers to anybody on the other side of Jordan. And it is used in the context of the Old Testament to refer generically to people who are outside the land. So we are to understand, as it says that he goes to the eastern peoples, that Jacob is being immersed in a different world. He is outside of the context of God's promised land. Jacob, and the shepherd, Jacob meets some shepherds here in verse 2. There, as in Haran now, he saw a well in the field, rural setting, with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. The NIV persists in its decision to leave the word behold out of our translation. It's, it, it should not be. Literally, verse 2 reads, then he looked and behold. Now that where you see there in the NIV, there he saw. The translation reads literally, then he looked and behold. Now why do I make such a big deal out of this word behold? We don't use it in contemporary English. But I think it needs to be here because, again, we're going to find three references to Hineh to Hinnah, the uh, Hebrew behold. And it will connect us back to chapter 28 and three uses of that same word behold in verses 12, 13, and 15. Here there is also a threefold use of that word. So the connection is made. We, I could put it this way, at Behel, behold a ladder. At Haran, behold a well. At Bethel, behold angels. At Haran, behold sheep and shepherds. At Bethel, behold the Lord. In Haran, behold Leah. There will be these connections then to his vision of God and these mundane circumstances of life. The same God is in both places. He's in the majestic dream at Bethel, and he is in the mundane scene at Haran. At that scene, there is a well, you notice there in verse 2. Remember Abraham's servant? Do you remember that passage? If, you, if we looked at it, it would be chapter 24, verses 11 and following. Remember Abraham's servant at the well? There is there, a, with painstaking detail, Moses records how that servant sought out the will of God. Remember he watched Rebekah and he prayed and said, God, is she the one? He carefully analyzed the situation. We see none of that here with Jacob. Jacob is just a man looking for a woman. There's no prayer. There's no care careful discernment. He's just a man in search of a wife. The contrast is glaring. Though the, it's silent here, it's a glaring contrast with chapter 24. Jacob happens simply upon a well. He's not praying. He's not searching the will of God. It doesn't appear. He just happens upon this well in this rural area. He's not... Uh, God, on the other hand, is actively orchestrating this well scene, as much as the earlier one when Abraham's servant met Rebekah at a well in Haran. So we've got two people, Abraham's servant and Jacob. Abraham's servant, this is an act of faith. He is seeking the will of God. He is seeing these mundane circumstances in a spiritual sense. Jacob, oblivious to it all. Where's God? He's right there with Jacob, just as he was with Abraham's servant. God doesn't take a vacation. God is always doing his work. He's right here with Jacob. Now on this well, as he happens upon this well, there is a stone. We obviously do not know anything about the stone over the mouth of the well. But we do know that it was typical in that day to carve out a massive uh, flat stone. When you're digging a well, you've got to allow enough space in the shaft for men to be down there digging. And so the, the, the wells would be a particular size, depending on how many workers were down there digging. But once you got up to the top, you have this big hole, and that would cause the problem. So they would carve out, uh, cut out 
a flat stone that would be very massive and very heavy, and they'd plop it right down on top. That would preserve the well, protect the water. But you still had to get in there. So they would cut a hole in the top of that, bore down through right over the top of the well in that large stone, and then they'd put a huge stone on top of that. And that would keep the well safe. No child would fall in. No animal would find their way in there and pollute the well. It would keep the dirt out uh, with windstorms and, and the like. So that's, that seems, I don't know if that's the case with this particular well, but that kind of idea was common to have a very heavy stone that would keep uh, difficulty out of, uh, out of the uh, well. Now in, in this situation, this stone, all we know is very large, and it seems to require several men to roll it off. This kind of a situation assured that no one could come and single-handedly access the water and drain the well dry. They would all have to come at the same time. It took several men to roll that stone off, and therefore they would share the water. They could all watch each other and make sure nobody cheated. Now the weight of the stone assures this kind of situation. Jacob sizes up that situation, and he approaches the shepherd. So he's seeing this well. He's seeing the stone. He sees the shepherd. He sees three flocks up against the well that appear to be folding for the night. Uh, that is, they're coming to their last drink and, and resting and being uh, out there under the stars at night and resting. Now, look at verse 4. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Now think about this for a moment. Jacob does not know exactly where he is. There's not a road here with a sign, Welcome to Haran. So it, where are you from? He doesn't know they're from Haran. He doesn't, he's found the right people. This is where he's headed. There's no road map for him exactly to follow. I'm sure that there was some information about what to look for generally. But he doesn't have a road map. He doesn't have signs. He doesn't know he's in Haran. And Bedouin shepherds like his uncle Laban do not have mailing addresses. They move around. You're, you're shooting for a needle in a haystack a little bit here. He's shooting in the dark and he hits the jackpot. What good luck! He's found people from Haran and they know his uncle. What luck? What luck? Or what providence? Luck or the very same God who directed Abraham's servant to Rebekah directing Jacob to Rachel? The answer is obvious. In fact, the shepherds say, here comes Laban's daughter right now. Imagine that. Laban's daughter. It is a daughter of Laban that is the very best marriage option for Jacob, and he knows it. I don't know how we can get a sense of this. Maybe to illustrate, it would just it'd be like looking for one person, you only know their first name, and you come to Minneapolis. Well, you know you're kind of in the general place. But how are you going to find that person? And you ask around and you somehow hear the very place you stop at this little restaurant for a bite to eat, wondering how in the world you're ever going to find this person. Here they are sitting right across the aisle having lunch. And you ask the guys next to you, do you know this person? They say, yeah, they're sitting right there. This is an amazing uh, circumstance and it obviously evidences God's work and I would imagine right about now that Jacob's heart starts to pound. He has journeyed perhaps for, for weeks on foot, as far as we know, and here is a good look at a potential wife. Verse 7, look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. Jacob, we've got to get here, Jacob is showing some considerable knowledge of, of shepherding. And it parallels the contention that I suggested earlier, that when we read that Jacob was a dweller in tents, we're not to read into that the idea that he's just a mama's boy who never left home. The idea was that he was a shepherd while his brother Esau was a hunter. Esau was never around. He was living outside, killing game. Jacob was able to live among the tents, probably because he was a shepherd. And we will see that in chapters 30 and 31 very clearly, that he was a very capable shepherd that knew his trade very well. And he stands up here and says, listen, you're not doing the right thing here. 
It's not time to fold the sheep for the night. The sun is still hot. Water these sheep and get moving. Get on with it. Uh, who in the world does he think he is? I mean, here he is in this boy, he's bossing these shepherds around. Well, the two suggestions that I've read, and there may be others, but one is, one, some have suggested that what he's really trying to do is get along with Rachel. I'm not buying that one, but it's really fun to think about. Uh, I, I, I think others have suggested that he may, is probably upset here with these shepherds. They're punching in early, so to speak. They're, they're not taking their sheep out to get all of the grazing time in that they could get in. They're, they're folding up shop here early. The sun is still high, he says. Get the sheep watered and get out of here. And we see this picture of Jacob emerging of a man who is very responsible and a very hard worker. So he kind of calls them lazy pumps. And uh, they somehow take it, but they inform him that there is a little bit of problem here, stranger. You don't understand, not living around here. The stone has to be removed from the well before we can water anything. Well, that's nothing a little star-struck love at first sight can't solve. So these shepherds, dulled by their routine, are about to be embarrassed by a man filled with the zeal of a mission to marry. Verse 9, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now, I, I think we get the idea here of shepherds standing there with wide eyes and gaping mouths. And Jacob probably, you know, dusting off his hands and saying, what's the problem, boys? Little stone to give you trouble? He rolls the thing off by himself as a... Uh, Hamilton puts it, one commentator, he said, it is a feat of Herculean strength. Jacob acts Samson-esque. Now, I don't know that we're to read into this necessarily miracle, but God gives him unique strength, unique energy at this point, and he pushes the stone. They were all waiting for a bunch of them to gather around and to push it off. The foreshadowing of this, I think, here is the, of the responsible care that he will later render to Laban as he waters now Rachel's flock, who is undoubtedly impressed with this knight in shining armor that just came out of nowhere and rolled the rock off for her and watered all of her sheep. So verse 11, Jacob then kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. Now, we don't have here a romantic kiss. This is the kiss of, of relatives. In that day, if he had kissed a woman publicly that was not his wife, he would not have received a good reception from Laban. He'd have been run out of town right there. That's not something that ever happened. And so we have here just the kiss of a relative. In other words, by kissing her, he's saying, I have the privilege to approach you because you are my relative. Relatives could kiss, and in public, if it was a time of great excitement and unusual, and he does that here. I'm your relative, and he kisses her. And you better believe he also notices her when he does that. This is a potential wife. Now, we don't marry relatives this way, and Scripture would even speak against it later. But in that day, to marry uh, a cousin who is from your mother's side was common practice. It worked out nicely with the exchange of clans and the like. So this is a potential wife as well as a relative. He really has the in here with her. And he cries. Great tears. Now, the... Uh, Oriental men in this period of time were much more expressive, much more emotional. For them to cry was something they could do and turn on fairly easily and off fairly easily. But I think here we're to get the idea in Jacob that th there's this ecstatic response. His mission, it appears, is being accomplished. God has led him to this woman after this long journey. Perhaps she is the one. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard, so she runs off and tells her father, of this man that's come from nowhere. And Laban hears, verse 13, the news about Jacob, his sister's son. He hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And, and there Jacob told him all these things. And Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. So Rachel fills in the details for Laban. And he hurries off to see this nephew. Remember, this is the man who many years ago had waved goodbye to his sister Rebekah. And now here's her grown son. He's excited to see him. I think it's genuine excitement. Now, I, you wonder, if you get to learn about this Laban guy, if he's not also seeing dollar signs in his eyes. You know, the last guy that came to pick up his sister, Rebecca, came with a bunch of gold. 
and a camel laden with goods from this far off land. Well, he knows this guy doesn't come with a lot of money. I'm sure uh, Rachel's probably filled him in there. But he rolled that stone off the well. Now, as far as we know, that was something that was really largely impossible for, for them, at least something that we, they would not do. And he watered his flock. And he was telling, telling the shepherds what to do. And so, as one suggested, he may be realizing that this man is really worth his own weight in gold. And he's starting to get his hooks into him early. Verse 14, Then Laban said to him, You're my own flesh and blood. That is, Jacob has found a home away from home. It does not appear that his immersion in Haran will be all that difficult after all. Starstruck with Rachel, Jacob is feeling pretty good about his situation. To paraphrase uh, Watke from last week, he does not realize, however, that he has landed on a spider web and that he's about to be sucked dry by Laban. But in all of this, Jacob gains a wife. He comes to Haran, he, he uh, completes his journey, the destination is realized, and now the goal is realized in the gaining of a wife, verse 14. After Jacob, this middle of verse 14, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Let me stop this real quickly and say that what Laban's doing here is not good. What he's doing is saying, you know, you're a relative here, but hey, let, let's name a price here. He's establishing an economic relationship, an employee-employer relationship with a relative. Rather than helping Jacob establish his own home, he's consigning him to a position as a worker, as a laborer. So magnanimously, name your wage. And under his breath, I like you, son, and I hope you're going to be around here for a long time, because I see you're a good worker. Verse 16, then, he probably is a little bit taken aback by this. And, he, you know, you realize here, Jacob has nothing. If you're going to have a wife, you've got to have something. You've got to pay a dowry. You've got to be able to make a purchase, so to speak. Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your daughter, your younger daughter, Rachel. The older, younger sibling motif resurfaces with ominous foreshadowing here. Leah with weak eyes. There's many interpretations here. It might be delicacy. It might mean immaturity. It may be, taking it straight up, that she lacked the brightness and sparkle in her eyes the intensity that Orientals prized at this time is beautiful. We don't know exactly, but in some way, she was not as attractive to Jacob. And apparently to anyone, because the text seems to judge fairly between these two and says she has weak eyes in contrast, but Rachel has lo was lovely in form and beautiful. Rachel, the Hebrew text makes very clear, was beautiful in form. And she was beautiful in sight. She was a lovely woman. And Jacob would do anything that he could to have her. Well, he gave all he had. His time and his expertise as a shepherd. Verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel. And this is what drove him. You almost wonder if back in Bathsheba, Rebecca got a cold chill of intuition right about then. And I don't know that she did, but just think about this, what just happened here. Unbeknownst to her, an infatuated Jacob had long forgotten his mother, and he was now quite willing to stay in Haran as long as it took to marry Rachel. Remember, Rebecca? Go off for a short time. Get away from your brother, and I'll call you to come back. Jacob isn't coming back. He's found a woman, and he is in love. He's really liking this Haran adventure all the way around. He's loving it, and all the more when Laban agrees, sort of, in verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. That's a really nebulous statement. I recall a, a statement, I think the family history the story is that uh, my dad asked to marry my mom, and my grandpa said, you know the answer to that. <laughs> that didn't please him a whole lot. <laughs> uh, I think I do. What, what does that mean? It's, got, it's kind of one of those type of answers. It's a real nebulous, well, better to give you that than someone else. And notice here, he doesn't use Rachel's name. He just refers to her. Very nebulous statement. Now, we don't know that Laban has anything in his mind at this point. It's going to be seven years before Rachel is married. He, he may be thinking nothing more 
uh, nothing at all, but it's a very nebulous statement. He does not say in agreement, in a contractual way, as would have been typical there, I will give you Rachel to marry. He just kind of lays in the weeds. It's a little bit of a shady answer. But in verse 20, Jacob runs off to work gladly. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. His love for Rachel is not purely infatuation. This is genuine love. This is romance in its purest form. It is enough to make the romantic heart flutter. Love is patient. And Jacob was willing to wait. This is legendary love, I found out. 1964, Charles Schultz published a cartoon book depicting the lives of a church youth group. It was entitled, uh, the book is entitled, What Was Bugging Old Pharaoh? I'll share this with you here. We got it thanks to my wife late last night. I just thought about this uh, cartoon. But uh, Jacob worked for Rachel's family for seven years to obtain her hand in marriage. I can't even find a boyfriend who will help my mother carry the groceries in from the station wagon. It's a legendary love. The love that, thank you. It's a, it's a love of patience. He loved Rachel and he proved it day after grueling day for seven years. We've seen an awful lot in Jacob that we do not appreciate, but he was a man of passion. And to love a woman with this kind of devotion, your respect for him has to grow. At long last, the day came, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Jacob is ecstatic. He cannot wait to receive his bride, to consummate the marriage, to live happily ever after. Imagine this great anticipation. He's worked seven years for this woman, and now it is time to receive his reward. He dreams about Rachel. He cannot stop thinking about her. He longs to be with her and to express his love to her physically, a love that has grown deeper for seven years, not a love that's grown cold. There's a lot of good, it would seem, in Jacob's heart here. Verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and he gave a feast. This would be a wedding feast, typically a seven-day feast. There would have been drinking in this situation, very likely and possibly too much for Jacob. It's hard to know, but in the cover of night with Leah veiled and perhaps with Jacob somewhat under the influence, Laban deceitfully substitutes Leah in the place of Rachel. Verse 23, when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. Verse 24 is really a skillful use of pen. It says, and Laban gave his servant to Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. Now, where in the world did that come from? And I think in the, in the text, it, 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 it really is a skillful use of the word, of, 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 of uh, storytelling. Moses kind of slips this little side note in to leave Jacob and Leah in bed in our minds for just a moment. To let that kind of simmer there, this woman sleeping with a woman who's not the woman he thinks he's sleeping with. Now, Zilpah will play a very important part in the story, but he, he slips that idea in here to kind of just leave that settle in our minds for a moment. Then we come to verse 25. When morning came... There was Leah. The Hebrew is dramatic. When it was in mourning, and behold, she, Leah. There's a she in Jacob's bed, and it isn't Rachel. He's shocked. Can you imagine the shock? The shock turning to horror. Perhaps his heart leaps as he awakes early on that first morning of married life. He remembers Rachel lying next to him, and he leans over to give her a kiss, and what? Who are you? His mind races to the night before, the party, the wine, those intimate moments of fulfillment, and the horror just descends on him with every thought, those whispered words of love in her ear, and it's Leah. Makes your skin crawl. His shock then turns to horror, from horror to rage. He had been deceived. Jacob, supplanter, had been deceived. No one squawks louder about being deceived than a deceiver. 
Where is Laban? He goes rushing out of the tent, or the house, wherever they're in, probably a tent. And there's a confrontation, verse 25. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, did not. Why have you deceived me? Is that blind chance? This is just purely ironic, coincidental. There is providence at work here. I don't know how to read the Bible any other way than to say the deceiver has been deceived. Jacob had pretended to be his older brother hiding behind the cover of his father's blind eye. Now, think about it. Hiding under the cover of dark, Leah pretends to be her younger sister and deceives Jacob. There's more than coincidence there. With all his heart, Isaac wanted to bless Esau. And I think, as I've said, at least it is my thinking on the text, that he knew God's prophecy, 25-23. He knew that Jacob was the chosen son. But he wanted to bless Esau with all of his heart. And as he touched his son and poured out his blessing, Isaac had Esau in his mind. But it was Jacob. Jacob deceived him. It was Jacob, not Esau, that stood before him. And when Isaac found out, he was shocked. With all his heart, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. As he touched, as he touched his wife's body, and poured out his virgin love that night. He had Rachel, Rachel in mind. But Laban deceived him, and it was Leah, not Rachel, that went with him. And when he discovered it, he was shocked. That's more than coincidence. Well, Laban has an explanation. Lame as it is, verse 26. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Following local custom in that day was seen as a sacred duty. There's a little bit more here than to what Laban's saying the night first meet the It was a sacred duty. To marry off a younger daughter in that setting was a breach of public trust. You just did not do that. We might parallel it today to what they're doing here, marrying a cousin or a marrying a half. Uh, sibling. You just don't do that. It's, it's breaking public confidence and breaking the law for that matter here. That same idea. You don't do that. You don't marry off the younger daughter. And it seems to be saying here to some degree, why would you ever ask me to do such an immoral thing? Who do you think I am to do such a thing? Who knows what Laban's thinking? We can't spend too much time worrying about it, but he may be feigning here the idea that he didn't really know of Jacob's love for Rachel. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. thought he was just looking for a wife. And, hey, I'll give those daughter I want to give. I don't know what he's thinking, but Laban knows what he's up to. I'll tell you that much. And he seems to be reasoning here, you know what, this all didn't work out so badly. I got seven years out of work for this guy. Man, I sold off a daughter. Now, that sounds very harsh to us, but in their context, to turn a daughter over to a man was financially very beneficial. She became the responsibility of that plan financially. And I think we have a father here all through the narrative, the following chapters as well, that really couldn't care less about his daughter. I've sold one off, and i got seven years of free labor out of this guy. Let's see if we can do it again. Verse 27, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. The deception continues. Finish her bridal week means continue out the seven-day festival with Leah. Um, and then I'll give you Rachel at the end of those seven days, and you'll serve me another seven years after that for her. Jacob has absolutely no choice. He was locked in. And he had the choice to do without Rachel, but if he's going to marry Rachel, he has no choice. He has to work another seven years. Again, there's no telephone, there's no email, there's no air service. Rebecca's back at home waiting. Fourteen years this is going to take to get Rachel. Time ticks away, and we don't know if Rebecca's even alive at this point. But Jacob agrees, and verse 28 says that. He did so. He finished his week with Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid servant. Jacob lay with Rachel also. And 
and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. He loved Rachel more than Leah. The deceiver had been deceived. Immersed in Haran, Jacob had providentially met his match. Laban feeds Jacob a spoonful of his own medicine. By means of Laban's sin, then, God puts Jacob in two spots. He puts through these circumstances, he got Esau, uh, uh, Jacob right down in Esau's spot. And so it's in a sense, feel this for a while, Jacob. Matter of fact, feel this for the rest of your life. What Jacob sent around came around and nailed him right between the eyes. Multiple wives was an evil. There's no less evil then than it is today, but it was a common practice in that day. And with multiple wives, Jacob will reap the consequences of his sin. Further, by marrying Rachel, Jacob is consigned to a life of family friction and division. A life of family friction and division. Jacob undoubtedly hated the rivalry and tension between his parents. And in his life for Rachel, he probably hoped to avoid all of that. But now favoritism will play an ugly role in Jacob's own family. Parental favoritism for one of two sons will be exchanged for a husband's favoritism for one of his two wives. What is more, this marriage to Leah and Rachel consigned Jacob to live this way and to forever consciously remember Laban's deception. That's exactly where Esau is. Every day of his life, remembering the deception of his brother. Now, Jacob, every day of his life, remembering the deception of his uncle. But he sent around came around and hit him between the eyes. What we see in this passage very clearly, just take a few moments, but I'd like us to filter it as we seek to understand God's working with us as his people. So bear with me a little longer. We see, first of all, God's discipline. Do you not? God had everything to do with Jacob's deception by Laban. God orchestrated those events specifically for Jacob. God was not responsible for Laban's sin, but God permitted Laban to do what he did, and thus God gave Jacob exactly what Jacob had given to Esau. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. The man reaps what he sows, and we reap in ways we may never anticipate. I wonder where it is for you today. Is there someone who is wronging you? Someone who is bringing misery into your life? Now, there's not always a one-to-one correspondence, and you better be very careful here. But it may be that while you cry foul, you are just reaping what you've sown. Providence is merely visiting you with what you have done to others. And I would, I would encourage you to this time, don't be obsessed with it. But I've seen times that God has worked in my heart through the difficulties that others have brought into my life or the circumstances that he's brought into my life. As I pray and I meditate and I think and I understand, I come to realize, you know what? I really think this is me experiencing what I've done to someone else. You can use such situations like that in premeditation. You may come to a place where he puts his finger of conviction upon your heart. And I know a major thing happens. I think of it as major. thing happened here just recently in my life. It's just the lights came on. This is discipline, Dan. For the same sin you've committed in the past against someone else in your heart. Now, I don't mean that be careful. We don't become obsessed with this. Telling God what he's done. Telling God why he's done it. Not that at all. But tenderly before the Lord, can we see in the struggles and difficulties that others place upon us that there may in fact be something of an experience that we have put on someone else? What did God want to do with Jacob when he disciplined him in this way? Did he want to break him? Did he want to hurt him? Did he want to make his life miserable? He wanted to humble Jacob. He wanted to bring him to a place of repentance. He wanted, and he wants to do the same thing with you. Not to beat yourself up over the sin of the past that has come into your life 
Jesus is your Savior, He is with you, 